Welcome to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Well, December is just flying by, and I have a lot of great guests lined up for you. And on this episode, I have writer-artist Steve Conley. He is the creator of The Middle Age, The Adventure of Sir Quimp, and his talking sword on a quest to find his beloved. But Steve has done much more than that. He was instrumental in the web design of the USA Today website, is on the Baltimore Comic Con advisory board, and created the Baltimore Comic Con logo, and has been instrumental in getting webcomics the recognition they deserve by being placed on the ballot of several comic book awards. Steve and I talk about several other webcomics that he likes to read and I like to read, and also Steve talks about his process from working digitally on an iPad to create his comic book, how he creates the chainmail look for Sir Quimp, and who influenced that look. You already know that my podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, and only for a couple more weeks on SoundCloud. However, the podcast is now available on Amazon devices, the Dot and Echo, so all you have to say is, Alexa, play podcast Creator Talks, and you'll hear the latest episode through your Dot or Echo devices. And as we near the holidays, think of one gift you could give me. I'd really appreciate it. If you like the show, send no money. Give that to other writers and artists who are asking for your support to help bring you new content. For myself, simply rate and review this podcast on iTunes if you like the show. Like this one, my conversation with writer-artist Steve Conley, the creator of The Middle Age, here now on Creator Talks. Steve, welcome to Creator Talks. Hi, thanks for having me. We're getting close to the holiday season. Are you prepping for the holidays? Do you have things that you need to get done before the holidays, either for family or for work? Uh, work as a freelancer tends to slow down between Thanksgiving and New Year. It's kind of the one, well, if you're uh, looking to make extra money right before the holidays, it tends to be a, a time for scrambling. But uh, it's a very quiet time, so usually I get my plans done uh, well ahead of time. How about yourself? Work actually gets very busy for me this time of year because there's only a you know, few shopping days left, a few sales days left. And uh, so the next few weeks are going to be fairly busy. Family-wise, you know, I start early. I always have that intention to do it, and people say, yeah, I'm going to start early. But what I do is the toughest thing for me is what do people want? That's the hardest thing. And uh, it's... Pretty common nowadays, people say, well, we'll get a gift card for the kids. And the kids love it. Uh, but the tough thing is the significant other. <laughs> once, and she doesn't listen to the show, so it's fine. Uh, once the missus tosses something out, I won't say what it is, I'm like, got it. <laughs> and I just make a note to myself, and then I either go to a store or I shop online. Uh, so, I, yeah, most stuff done. And kids are fairly easy. One is six. All he wants is Minecraft stuff. All he wants... <laughs> is gift cards to download things. Uh, the other one is just over one years old, and uh, Declan, you know, if it's a cardboard box, he's thrilled. Right now, <laughs> right now he found a, uh, like a butterfly net from a toy, and he's just running around the house. He thinks it's hilarious, trying to catch me, trying to catch the dog. You know, it's the simple things right now for him are great, and the, the best gift about that is it's hilarious. It, it brightens our day when he does goofy things like that. Oh, that's great. So you have done... A lot. And as I dug into your background, I was like, holy cow, Steve has done so much that I don't know if everybody's aware of this. Probably people in the business are, of course, but for the casual fan, I think they need to know. And you've done a lot to contribute to the growth of the, the building of the internet as a platform for comics, for business and webcomics. You know, you're one of the driving forces behind 
independent web comics. You promote comics as a member of the Baltimore Comics Con advisory board. And you also developed the logo. I didn't realize that for the Baltimore Comic Con. Would you sum up for me your personal mission statement for promoting comics? What are you trying to do and how are you doing it? Oh, boy. Uh, I, I think, well, my experience in comics goes back about 25 years um, where the Spirits of Independence tour, which maybe is about having its 20th anniversary about now, uh, was a tour that Dave Sim had put on uh, and a bunch of other independent creators at the time. Um, uh, Rick Veach, Steve Bissett, uh, let's say Paul Pope, uh, James Owens, uh, Owen, excuse me. Um, they had a, what was a national tour of cartoonists and uh, they would, each one was in a different city and they would partner with a local comic shop and they would set up a small comic book show. So if you've been to SBX or any small indie show like Space in Columbus or what uh, Ape used to be in Mocha, things like that, they've all grown quite a bit. But back in the day, they were a bit more intimate. Uh, they focused primarily on independent cartoonists and this independent spirit that the those shows had uh, hit me at the right time. And it's the mission was that what the idea was that you bring a bunch of cartoonists together and that a you know rising tide lifts all boats. And I, I tend to think that that's still my approach. The idea is that, I mean, I want to be a cartoonist first and foremost. Um, I spend, I have spent the majority of my time helping the community partly to serve myself, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, well, I want to be a cartoonist full time. I want to face that challenge of when the rent is due, that my solution is to draw a picture. I think that's a wonderful, <laughs> yes, I mean, that's the, that's the goal. Um, uh, but that can only happen in an environment that, uh, is healthy. So what I do is I try to help make that environment healthier. And so when I was, I was living in the Washington DC area, uh, for about 20 years, and that put me in and around the Small Press Expo and the Baltimore Comic Con. And so I was very involved with both of those organizations from the beginning. Um, I exhibited at the first 20 or so SBXs. I've exhibited at every Baltimore Comic Con. Mark Nathan, who runs the Baltimore Comic Con, is a dear friend. Uh, and so from the very beginning um, in those areas, I, I felt like if I can help foster these communities and these events, that those will be places where I can sell my wares and I also can buy work that I like and that, you know, anyway, so that, that's what it is. It's it's on some level self-serving on the other um, at a point where if I weren't creating comics, I like the idea that I would have helped create a place where I could go find comics I like. How would you define the difference between comics and cartooning? Boy, uh, well, I, I kind of use them interchangeably. Um, cartooning, is, I, I focus on as mostly as the craft and that cartooning can have a million different uh, applications. Uh, you could cartoon for uh, graphic design. You can cartoon for road signs. You can cartoon for um, airline safety manuals. Uh, but you know, comics. I tend to think of it in terms of its, and this is, I don't know, weird parsing. I tend to think of that as the direct market business, whereas you kind of have comics, which is kind of this, uh, the comic shop, the comic, con the comic con. There's that kind of community that is very direct market, Marvel, DC oriented. Comics doesn't have to be that, but it tends to be that. Uh, and it's tended in, and again, part of it is not like, I'm, I'm not trying to foist a definition on people, but by looking at how people use that word, that tends to be what they mean by it. Uh, cartooning is kind of the broader community of P 
people who write and draw the horror, people who, who write but don't see themselves limited to just words. How people get into comics, you know, it varies now. I mean, back when I was younger, it was through reading comic books. Now people that get into comics, maybe their entry was either cartoons in the 90s that were on television like the X-Men. Sure. Or uh, it may have been, well, more recently, the movies, the Marvel movies, the DC movies. And what is it that got you into cartooning and comics? Did you grow up reading comics from Marvel DC? Or was there some other way that you entered into comics and cartooning? I think it was newspaper strips. I'm 48. Um, and uh, we, my, my, I remember these very clearly. I was thinking about them the other day. My grandmother uh, would get the newspapers from Long Island. I was growing up on Long Island. My grandmother would get uh, the Daily News and Newsday and would clip out the comic strips. And for birthdays and Christmas, I would get these black marble composition notebooks in which she had pasted uh, like a year's worth of comic strips of Garfield. At the time, the Hulk had a newspaper comic strip. Spider-Man had a comic strip because that was the time in the 70s when uh, the Hulk TV show and Spider-Man TV show were trying to gain some traction. I, I guess the Spider-Man comic books, the comic strip is still going. But she would paste these in these composition notebooks and I would devour them. And then there were things like the the, the Peanuts collections, the small uh, paperbacks of the Peanuts. And it, comic books themselves, like the the comics from the 70s were definitely in and around my life as well. I, I remember seeing them at flea markets and things, things like that. I think comics were empowering for me because I grew up uh, without a lot of uh, money. We grew up quite quite poor. And it's a very cheap hobby. You know, uh, we had paper and we had pencils. And so uh, other people might have been having might have video games or television. I mean, we, we had a television, but it was like a really old television. It was like it was a, allegedly at one point a, a color TV, but it, it's uh, enough of its picture tube had burnt out. So it was like this green and white monstrosity. It kind of looked <laughs> like an old CRT monitor. Hmm. Uh, all I remember, the most vivid memory is in the summer that it gave off so much heat that I, I didn't want to be anywhere near it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but comics were sort of a cheap hobby. It was, uh, you know, you could tell any story you wanted, but the comics that really hooked me were probably the newspaper strips. Again, it was Peanuts, Garfield. Uh, and again, those Marvel comics that got the way, uh, got themselves into um, the newspaper. And then when the, when the comic books hit, I remember the first comic book I bought off the spinner rack was a Godzilla comic. I think a Herb Trimpey drawn comic. Yes, I actually had that. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, like... Uh, Godzilla versus a giant yeti, Yetrigar, the, the, like, something like the giantest yeti of all, something really corny and wonderful. It's like those old Marvel horror comics, the, the Atlas days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, Star Wars 2 had a strip in the 70s for a while, and uh, Dark Horse collected them as comic books, and they're really good. Um, Isn't it like Al Williamson artwork? It is. Or something? It yeah. is, and he did the adaptation, well, besides all the work he's done, he did the adaptations of at least the first two movies. Um, yeah, beautiful. beautiful oh, stuff. man, it's great. And I remember reading some of those and just, wow, just couldn't believe that was in a newspaper. But uh, yeah, there's great cartoons in the newspaper. I, I wonder, what do you think about the state of those going forward? Because it's difficult for print uh, newspapers. So what do you think uh, kind of future they hold? Oh, I have no idea. I, I worked for newspapers for a while. I worked for USA Today and the Gannett News Service. Gannett's a company that owns a bunch of newspapers. Uh, about 20 years ago, I worked for them. And uh, I wouldn't have imagined that newspapers were going to go away. They're having a little bit of a resurgence now, but the the advertising model has blown up. And, and I don't mean that good way. I mean, it is it is disintegrated, partly because of Internet advertising and partly because the economy is essentially in the toilet, I think. I think, I mean, right now, Wall Street's having a heyday. But um, I think in the local level, local newspapers, which would be, 
you know, the vast, we're not talking about the Washington Post or the New York Times, we're talking about the, like the, the small newspapers back when they were three or four in each city. Those newspapers thrived on smaller, uh, hungrier audiences. The advertising revenue was enough to make those things worth seeing. So it's kind of a catch-22. They, they don't have enough of an audience locally to make advertising worthwhile, and they don't have enough advertising to invest in it to create a product that's worthwhile. So the newspapers are just in this terrible box. Getting to the comic I'm currently working on called The Middle Age, that originally grew out of a conversation I had with an editor at a newspaper strip syndicate who said, there's no money in newspaper comics, but would you want to do one? And I, I you know, I, I've, I've been in love with that format since as far back as I can remember. And the middle age kind of grew out of that, that thought of what kind of newspaper strips that I like, what kind of work would I like to do for the next 10 years of my life. And this comic strip kind of grew, again, it kind of grew out of that idea of, if, if this was going to appear in the newspaper, what would I want to do? Uh, knowing full well that there's no money to be made in it. Um, so I, I, getting back to your question, I, I don't know. I feel terrible for people who, who all they want to do is newspaper comics. Because I don't think that market uh, has any kind of stable future. I, I don't know how you predict uh, where that goes. The short answer is I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to predict because it is changing. And some of the papers are evolving. And they are trying to, you know, change their advertising model. Some of them are able to do a lot with digital. But, um, yeah, it changed so much with the strips because back in the day, if I recall correctly, uh, Stan Lee once said, not to me directly, <laughs> but he, he once said that he wanted to be a newspaper strip writer because that had the biggest circulation more so than the comics. That I think that was more his dream besides writing the great novel. I think most of them did. I think a lot of them either wanted – and the cartoonists wanted to be either illustrators for the magazines, which it, it tends to be where they want to do the thing that pays the most money because the thing that makes the most money seems to have the most cachet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know what that is right now. Currently – well, currently what is at least in the comic book world is to go do – go work for Marvel or DC and draw Batman. To me, that's being in a cover band. You're basically doing Jack Kirby's greatest hits and uh, I don't think – you know. Not a lot of people are capable of coming close to touching the original, so you know, that's never hold, that's never held much appeal for me. Well, for those fans of comics who read a lot of the mainstream comics, Marvel, DC, and uh, not knocking them, some of them are very good, and uh, some great creators on them too. Yeah. But for those who are limiting themselves by just reading those books, and that of course is going to take a lot of their funds, their money that they spend on comics because they are expensive now that the print ones anyway. Um, what would you suggest to those readers who are just focusing on the big two? What should they look for and what should convince them to spend some of their dollars on the smaller press, the independent press? They should because they might find something they really like. Uh, I tend to think, having worked I, I, a couple of times throughout my career, I've never really pitched to any of the big companies, uh, but I've been approached by them to pitch things uh, or opportunities have come around and say, hey, do you want to write this thing? I've done it in an effort to kind of just to get a sense of that experience and also to kind of add it to my resume to say, hey, I've written some Aquaman, you know, just to be able to add that to my credentials. And also, like, I drew Star Trek for IDW and that was a wonderful project. Uh, but it was also a case of I'm going to draw this thing based on a property that I love and with the team that I like. And I will have this, and, and for like two or three years, it, it meant it opened the door to me at a lot of these comic book conventions. It's a Steve Conley, artist of Star Trek. You know, what I mean, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a, as opposed to trying to introduce people to a new property that they've never heard of. I say the reason why people should try other things is that they just might like them. Uh, the creators are often the same creators. A lot of them, uh, if they've enjoyed their work on a Marvel or DC book, many of them are also doing books on Image or for other publishers, and they're worth checking out because 
I don't know. It, it, it's just going to vary things up. But there there are people who just want to see read superhero comics. And then you have the you've been a big proponent of the work of the what uh, Alterna company. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, check those guys out, because what I like about them is that they have that kind of low threshold for entry, that really inexpensive price point. I don't know how that benefits the comic shop owners. I think comic shop owners like being able to make one or two bucks per sale of books. You know, if it takes up as just just as much sell space, I, I don't know how comic shops feel about a, a one dollar or dollar fifty item. But yeah, I would say just try something out. You might find something you like again. And a lot of these comics also, at least if you're from the independent people, we have a lot of our material online so you can sample it and see if you dig it. For myself, you know, I read a lot of the, the big two comics and then I would see a creator go to a smaller publisher and I'd follow along and say, oh, well, I really like their writing. I like their art or I like who they teamed up with for their own work and I'm willing to give it a chance. And, you know, as far as those like $1.50 comics, I mean, if it gets people into a comic shop, I mean, of course, they have newsstand distribution. So it's going to hopefully work out that way, too, through bookstores. But if it gets people into a comic shop and gets them buying those books and others as well. And they, you know, get their pull box set up and they can always pre-order, then it shouldn't hurt yeah. the comic shop. If anything, it should draw more people in because they can at least get a taste and get started. Same for going online and reading some of these comics. It will give them a taste and get them started. So when they come out in print, they may say, you know, I like that so much. I do want to have a hard copy. I want that tangible feeling in my hand of the book. But you've had a lot of influence on web comics and getting more recognition for them. Uh, you were a judge for the 2005 Eisner Awards. And it was you who made a proposal that changed the ballot forever. So tell me, <laughs> <laughs> what did you do? In um, 2005, I think that at that time I was a uh, executive director of the SPX. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jackie Estrada, who runs the Eisner Awards, had contacted me and said, you know, I was I had been a cartoonist. I'd known her and Batten Lash for a while, having Batten was on the Spirits of Independence tour from back in 95. So I'd known them since then, helping to run SPX and asked me to be an Eisner judge. When I got there, I'd say the preceding three years, every time the Eisner nominations came out, there'd be an uproar online saying web comics have been slapped in the face, you know, something like that. And so I said, Jackie, why hasn't this category been created? And she said, no one's written a proposal. It was it was really as simple as that. I mean, and I say it's as simple as that, but because it was at that point like writing law, because you have to be very specific when creating these categories in any of these awards to well distinguish what makes it. Now you have to define what a web comic is. In order to have a category, and so it is kind of a it's it's a little bit was a little bit of a headache, um, but so worth it because um, uh, it, we got to add them to the ballot for the first time, which was which was great. And it's and then I got nominated last year in that category. Uh, so uh, I'd like to think I was playing the long con, but uh, <laughs> but uh, it was great. One of the things that's interesting about the Eisner Awards, and it was part of the Eisner Awards, which is in San Diego, um, that they have kind of a separate fiefdom from comic strips and the Rubin Awards. Comic strips were over in one area with the Rubens and comic books were over in the Eisners. And web comics often looked a heck of a lot like comic strips. And so I think that was part of, okay, how do we say that these web comics are not comic strips? Eisners also had a criteria which was very interesting, which was it has to be a professional comic book. And now you have to come up with a rationale or uh, distinguishing characteristics that elevate something above a web comic, which isn't making any money or very few of them make any money. Very few of them can be considered professional endeavors. Uh, what makes one qualify as a professional webcomic? And in 2005, that was a little bit harder to do. It was a heck of a great challenge. The other judges were on board about it. I got to essentially collect all the URLs and forward them to everybody back when it was a lot tougher to do that. And then subsequently, 
uh, other judges in intervening years have uh, expanded the category. They've added a, a uh, digital comics category. They've clarified some of the language to make it not so anti-comic strip. The very first year, it was kind of like, again, they, they wanted to keep comic strips separate from comic books. That very first year, it was... Uh, the rules were a little more strict, and so they've relaxed those a bit. I might not have been qualified, or my uh, the middle age might not have been uh, capable of being nominated in the first year, given how harsh the rules were. But you didn't stop there, though. You went on to write guidelines for other awards, like Ignatz and uh, the Harvey Awards, too. Yeah, and and the Ringo Awards. Again, I got to do the, the webcomic category for the Ignatz Awards. Uh, a friend of mine, Jeff Alexander, had come up with those awards as part of the SPX and uh, did a great job. And, but from the beginning, I was like, webcomics need to get some love. And I got to present the very first online comic uh, award for the Harveys, and that was great. And then the Ringo Awards, I worked with the Baltimore Comic Con to help come up with uh, the format and structure for that award. Well, I'm very happy to see that award in Baltimore. And I don't know if you can talk about the change-up uh, since you're on the advisory board, because it used to be the Harvey Awards that were at Baltimore. Do you know why they decided to go elsewhere to, to hold that each year? I don't know. I, I do know that it's been a fairly nomadic award. Since it's moving to the New York Comic Con now, it must have had six homes by now, seven homes. It was part of Pittsburgh at one point. It was part of Mocha. It was part of, I believe, a show in Seattle. I might have been in Dallas. I, I, I think it's it's been all over the place. I honestly don't know the history of the award enough to, to tell you, but I do know that it's had multiple homes. But I think when it, uh, it was in Baltimore for maybe 10 years. I think it was just time for them to, to move. And uh, that gave uh, Baltimore a chance to come up with something new and something quite a bit different. I, I like what they've come up with a lot. You've also given back to the community, especially to the most important people in our community, the kids, in, in, my, in my opinion, the future of our world. You have taught comics and cartooning at the elementary school level and after school programs in DC. Why did you decide to do that? That was a wonderful opportunity. It was a challenge, mostly. I had never done that. Um, I have taught some courses at the college level, things like Photoshop and some interactive design. Uh, but never for kids. And a friend of mine who had a, a young child in the elementary school system, uh, she was a cartoonist as well. And she said, hey, do you want to teach this class? And it, yeah, I, I loved it. I do a lot of educational comics right now. Rick Veach and I are partners in a company called Eureka Comics. I would say it's my day job. Uh, we produce comic books for textbooks and educational institutions and for corporations. So when they want to explain something in a way that's a bit easier for reluctant readers or young people uh, or people with uh, English as a second language or things like that, using comics as an educational tool. We've been doing that for the last three years. So I, I love doing that stuff. It's comics uh, really open up kids' eyes. I learned to read through them, with them, so um, I, I can speak to their power. And was there a particular child in the class that really stands out in your mind? They were all so great and different. Um, part of the, what the class did was I had them create a mini comic, basically a four page comic and fold over the paper so that at the end of the class, they would have their own mini comic. And I think it was, it was like one day a week for six or 10 weeks or something like that. I've, I had done it a few years and the, uh, the, uh, structure was a bit different each time, but the goal at the end was to give everybody a comic and to give each one of them four or five copies of the comic that they could then give as gifts or they could trade with each other things like that. Uh, so I don't know. There were so many that were wonderful. I, I couldn't tell you which one was a standout. Just a, a wonderful experience. And you've done a lot of work on the web, web design. We talked about that earlier. Uh, you worked at USA Today Gannett. And, you know, you've worked on web designs for them, for Comic-Con, uh, Time for Kids, The Washington yeah. Post. So is that sort of your day job to support cartooning is doing web design and web work? No, it, it, comics are primarily are 
about 85% of what I do. Now, usually with the educational work with the Eureka Comics. But web design is something I have been I had been doing since uh, the launch of USA Today's website. And I had done, I had been involved in bulletin boards before the web. And then when USA Today was launching their site, I had been in the art department and I jumped on the opportunity at the opportunity to design their site. It basically turned that into a very uh, good freelance career for many years. I still do it. I still love designing websites. I maintain a number of websites from a number of small companies, but it's not uh, my bread and butter. Businesses like Square, Space, and Wix, things like that, frankly, Facebook have made it easier for small businesses to have an online presence without necessarily having to invest in me. Uh, the idea of having a unique website is great and it can suit some properties and some projects and some businesses very well, but it's not a necessity. I mean, people just want to see your phone number, your business hours, you know, maybe a menu, things like that. If they, if they want to see what your business is, they don't need all the bells and whistles and the maintenance fees of having a designer all the time. Not, not, I, I don't mean... If you're thinking about hiring a designer for a website, please go hire one. But I mean, uh, I understand the, the business rationale of not doing that. I mean, I made my own website, so they made, Good, yeah. it's, it's, it's so it's, e easy now. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about your webcomic, The Middle Age. Uh, I love it. Sir Quimp is a middle-aged knight on a quest with a snarky and sarcastic talking sword. This was both an Eisner and Ringo Award nominee, and it's been going on for over a year and a half now, so congratulations on that. Thanks. Why A Knight's Quest? Do you write? Do you craft fiction in any way? I know. I've never had a hand at fiction. When, you, when you're sort of starting it, it's like starting with a big block of marble and what it can be. And I can't tell you exactly how. That was the sort of shape, the Michelangelo line about what was in that statue was inside the marble, and you just sort of get rid of everything else. When I was starting this comic project, he was inside the marble. Um, and, um, he really took shape in 2015's Inktober event where I was just doing a daily ink sketch and I started drawing this really goofy character. I've produced a sketchbook that's available from my website and from me at comic conventions, which shows some of the early versions of him where he was kind of a hapless looking knight, but he didn't really become the character he is now in the comic strip until that Inktober. There was just something while I was drawing it, like the rhythm of what I was drawing, he got rounder and he got shorter. Some of those were considerations of the format, thinking that this might be a newspaper comic strip, that everything had to be short and squat to fit the, the constricted space of, of the strip. Uh, but the Knight's Quest, I wanted it to be something simple because again, if it's going to be distributed in comic strip form, if it's going to start off as a weekly comic strip, I can't have that complicated a plot. I think a knight rescuing his love is very easy to get across. Uh, a talking sword means fewer characters on the panel that I have to draw. I can draw a knight talking. A whole conversation can happen with a knight holding a sword. And it's like, okay, I'm drawing one figure, holding a weapon, basically talking to himself. That frees up a lot of room for my goofy dialogue. There was so many practical considerations. And I feel Quimp's hope and his optimism and his the aspirational quality of the character uh, and I also have that nasty, snarky sword always uh, yammering away in the back of my head, uh, kind of that cynical side, that skeptical, that harshly skeptical side. And so this character is just sort of a culmination of those two aspects of the of my personality and, and a, a chance to let them riff against each other. It didn't have to be a knight. It could have been a superhero. It might have taken a form similar to the tick or it could have been science fiction or could have been something else or something more dystopic. Also, I go to Renaissance festivals and I think I was at a Renaissance festival and was like, I should draw this stuff. I could see this is, there's something really goofy about the, you know, because I was living in Maryland and there's a wonderful Renaissance festival called the Maryland Renaissance Festival. And they had like, the, the, like one of the huts is called like the King's Pita, something so dumb and so <laughs> incongruous, 
but at the same time, it's all ye old everything and a very silly and fun. And I thought that's that can have a lot of fun with that. So that's why it's a Knight's Quest. I'm a fan of Monty Python, and it reminds me of that in terms of the humor. But it's also family friendly. So you know, when you had the first cartoons collected in a book, I could read it to my son without any problem and get a good laugh out of it myself. That's great. Part of it, part of what I liked was I made a point of not having, again, thinking about newspaper audiences. At one point, there's a little bit of blood in there, and I had that on a separate layer, and I thought, ooh, I could hide that. It doesn't necessarily <laughs> need to be there. But then there was other things, other considerations like the sword uh, drinks blood or something like that. So there's less blood on the strip because, the, you know, it, trying to come up with story reasons to keep it clean. Uh, and then Quimp of Grawlix. Grawlix is um, the name for that string of weird characters, the dollar sign, percentage, at sign, pound sign, that sort of thing. Um, that's called a Grawlix. All the names in the strip have some bearing on that kind of silly, cartoony, uh, inside baseball stuff. Now, why a middle-aged hero? Because uh, I'm middle-aged. <laughs> I, I, you know, part of it also is that, doing, again, thinking with a newspaper comic strip, they said, if you want to have a popular newspaper comic strip, feature kids and animals. And I'm like, okay, I'm not, what am I going to do? Follow Calvin and Hobbes? I mean, follow Peanuts? Follow, I mean, there's no way. I mean, what, I got to steer clear of that stuff because those are genius. And they're not me. I don't, I don't have kids. I lack those insights. But I do know about getting older. I don't know. It, it also, it's one of those things where I thought it was a perspective that I hadn't seen in this form. Everyone tends to tell the story about the great hero or the childlike hero, whether that's Frodo or Bilbo. You know, it could be, it doesn't have to be a child, but it's childlike. You know, it has this innocent quality going out into the world. And he, this, this character's definitely got some innocence that lets me make jokes and play around with the world and let the, the reader see the world through his eyes. But he's also, um, I don't know. There's a, there's a little bit of desperation when you get a little bit older, and I think that makes the story a little more fun. We're both middle-aged, so I'm cool with it, and you sound like you're cool with it. Now, some people complain, you know, things hurt, uh, there's so much responsibility, blah, 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 blah. But in your opinion, what is the best thing about being middle-aged? Uh, I'm smarter than I was. <laughs> yeah. You know? I, I agree. I feel the same way. <laughs> I, there's um, not that I, you know, it, I set a very low bar. I don't know how smart I was before. <laughs> But uh, there's one of those things where you're always at that kind of point where you're at every single moment of your life, you have as much energy as you're ever going to have. And you're also as smart as you're ever going to be because your amount of energy is declining, but your amount of brain power is going up. So when I was younger, I had a lot more energy, but I wasn't that smart. Now I have less energy, but I'm smarter. So I think there's a uh, sweet spot and I still feel like I'm in it because my work, I think, keeps getting better. It's one of those things where. I look back on stuff I did six months ago and I, and I see flaws in it. I see weaknesses in it. And I think that's a sign that the work is improving. And my fear is that at some point I'm going to look back on something I did six months ago, man, I, and think, man, I wish I could still do that. You know what I mean? That point that recognizing that I have peaked. Uh, so thankfully I haven't done that. I, I take uh, heart in reminding myself that Jack Kirby did his best work in his forties and, and fifties. Yeah, and some of the great cartoonists really worked well into their later years. But I hope to do this story for ten years. I hope to. I hope the, my supporters on Patreon. I hope my supporters, uh, who my my friends and fans on, uh, that I meet at the comic shows, continue to support the strip because uh, I'd love to keep doing this well into old age. Well, let's talk about the format and design of the strip itself. So you do all this work on an iPad with uh, Procreate and Photoshop with lettering. So, but it's not the tools though; it's your talent. The tools don't really matter because you could do it. Pencil and paper doesn't matter. But but that's how you produce it is all on an iPad. Yeah, I love it. Uh, almost two years ago, I got my first iPad. And it wasn't for 
four months or so, three or four months before Procreate really caught my attention and I, I started using that. And that's really what did it for me. It's a great program. Uh, a lot of the drawing tools they had before them weren't particularly powerful uh, or they couldn't do what I needed them to do. Uh, but I mean, part of it is that, you know, you can pinch and zoom the artwork to zoom in. My eyes are also getting older. So being able to zoom in almost infinitely helps a lot. But it was a chance to do something different. Most of my comic work that I had done in the first 10 years of my career, 15 years of my career, were all drawn digitally with a mouse in a vector program like Freehand or Illustrator. Then when I started doing the Star Trek work, and then I also did another comic strip in 2008, a semi-political comic strip, that was all done in pen and paper. Uh, part of the thinking there was I wanted to have original art to sell when I was done. So that, you know, whatever the page rate I was getting for Star Trek, by the end of it, I would have these pages of Star Trek art to sell and that I didn't want to work digitally and not have those. So I was working traditionally. Then I was working on a comic strip called Bloop. Again, all done traditionally, pen and paper. I was using these magnifying eyeglasses to kind of put in this crazy detail work. Uh, but that gave me some fluidity with pens, with brushes. And so when the iPad came around, it let me combine the computer work that I loved at the beginning, some kind of aptitude, let's say modest aptitude with the pen and ink, with the new device. And then, you know, being able to work in pen and ink and having the ability to undo at the same time is so overpowered. I feel bad for anyone who never had this kind of technology. I mean, this huge point in artistic history where the stylus and the pens came around uh, versus everything before that. You see a beautiful piece of original artwork that Wally Wood had, and you see that, you know, stacks and stacks of white out and layers and layers of tape put down to fix this and that. And the idea now that I have almost infinite levels of undo, I can save infinite variations of it and tweak things and try different things. And if I don't like something, I can nudge it over a few millimeters. It's overpowered. It's wonderful. I don't know. So I was working with it the entire time and um, I still am. And the software keeps getting better. And the reaction has been quite nice. You did this montage of Doctor Who's, this one picture. Tell everyone where you did that. I thought that was <laughs> a great story. I was stuck at the DMV. Uh, <laughs> that was pre-iPad. That was, uh, I happened to have my laptop with me, a Mac laptop. And I was at the DMV in Northern Virginia, and their statewide computer system had gone down. I think I was like the next in line to be helped, finally get my new license plates. And I'm sitting there, and I'm I'm, they say, well, you can just go, you can come back tomorrow. I'm like, I'm not leaving. So I went to the car, got my laptop, and on the back of one of those terrible clipboards they used, uh, they hand out for everyone to fill out scads of paperwork i used that as my mouse pad and i drew the at least i started the drawing of doctor who while i was at the i think i finished all of peter capaldi's face and his hand by the time the computer system came back online that's amazing and folks if uh, you haven't been to steve's website there's a great video that you show how you draw the armor for um the middle age for quimp thanks for mentioning that that was a lot of fun it's part of uh there's so many great cartoonists who have done work set in the Renaissance and Middle Age and uh, the Dark Ages, like Prince Valiant. Hal Foster's Prince Valiant and Wally Wood did some beautiful work from that period. Is the way they drew armor and chainmail was lovely. There's all these different approaches to how you can do it. And then Russ Manning had the kind of uh, that cool style that he did for Magnus, mm -hmm. and that's sort of how like Aquaman's uh, scales were drawn. And uh, I just had to do something different, something a bit more mathematical methodical is kind of my approach to things and so i came up with this way of drawing it and it is labor intensive but i love the effect so much on the very first strip i was working on the middle age i came up with that approach the good thing about working in procreate is you get to save a video of everything you do when you're done drawing you can export a sign of a stop motion version of the entire creation process oh that's how you did it that's really cool i have that very first strip where i can see that i tried drawing it like hal foster 
And I erased it and then said, okay, I need to come up with a plan. And I could see me coming up with the plan of like, oh no, I'll draw guidelines, I'll create a grid and I'll just do this formulaic approach. But it's really cool because it gives a character a very different look and without being pure black and white. Like one of the things you wanna do with a cartoon character is you wanna make their silhouette stand out, but you also wanna give them their figure a little bit of punch, a little bit of three dimensionality and maybe some weight. And that chainmail effect gave it that. I may regret it at some point because I spent hours and hours and hours drawing it, but uh, I just like the end result so much. You mentioned Hal Foster, Wally Wood, Russ Manning. Who would be in your Mount Rushmore of creators? It's all over the map. I've always had a problem with that. I have influences that are so disparate that I can't reconcile them. I can love Alex Toth and I can love Frank Frazetta, and they couldn't be different in terms of the finish and in terms of their storytelling. And then Yves Chalon from France, and then Richard Thompson. Again, some sort of a clear line, cartoony style versus the wackiest, scratchiest, funniest drawings you've ever seen. I kind of get influences from everywhere, whether it's Mignola or uh, Ditko or you know Jeff Smith. Uh, Walt Kelly is a huge influence on me. Uh, and I kind of credit Jeff Smith with kind of people saying, oh, he's, he's drawing like Walt Kelly. I'm like, it's sort of like how when you read Douglas Adams and it's like, okay, who else writes like Douglas Adams? And they say, oh, you know, uh, Robert Sheckley. And then you start finding Robert Sheckley's work. It's sort of like that. But anyway, it's too many to mention. But uh, Wally Wood was an early, early influence on me. Uh, I would go to the library. The library had this very small comics and cartooning section, these hardback books. And one of them had a bunch of reprints. And one of them had a famous Wally Wood story called The Curse. I forget who wrote that. Forgive me. But uh, a wonderful story drawn by Wally Wood called The Curse. And uh, amazing trees and lighting. It's medieval. I won't spoil the story. People should check that out. It's amazing. Uh, but that blew my mind when I was a kid. Wallywood was probably the biggest influence on me starting out. Back to your webcomic, you're planning for the future. And, and for some cases, like obsolescence, you have, you're creating this in five different sizes. I mean, it could work for print, for a strip. And now, you know, your online webtoons, we can scroll through vertically. And fans are pretty happy with that. Part of it was like, okay, so it starts off with this genesis of being for newspaper comics. And I thought, okay, the trouble with newspaper comics is they're so horizontal and there's no there's no devices that match a newspaper comic strips uh, format. So what can I do to have the best of both worlds? And so every single one of my strips has a gutter right down the middle so I can take the two halves and stack them. Uh, not similar to what Charles Schultz was doing with Peanuts when it very in the very first decades of the Peanuts. He drew them in four equal sized boxes. And what those did was allowed newspapers to print them either as a a grid of four, of a two by two, a vertical column or a horizontal row. And this applies the same kind of logic. So that uh, I'm producing work that can look good in print, that can work as a comic strip. And uh, most recently, I've been adapting it to the vertical scroll. I, there were some of my strips that just would not convert that way. I love doing a panorama. I love the kind of cinemascope wide shot, establishing shot, or like a big dramatic horizontal a bit of action that just doesn't fit in the kind of webtoons tapas vertical scrolling approach. But first and foremost, I'm thinking about this in terms of print. That's still probably most long lasting version of this strip that will exist. If, if webtoons goes away tomorrow, the print versions of the books will continue to exist. I would think it would be a lot of extra work to put these strips in five different formats, but is it, does it take a lot extra time or you able to turn it around fairly quickly. <laughs> not, not as much as the chain mail. It, <laughs> is, uh, it takes about, I don't know, 10 minutes now. I've got it down to a, a science. I've got a bunch of templates that I, I put things into. The Webtoons format, I play a little bit more because um, the vertical format lets you 
play with it. I, that might become more formulaic. I've only done that for a few strips so far. Uh, but my fear is that it's going to constrain my layouts. So I start off with, my, when I first draw the strip, I draw in its stacked format for print. But I have to keep in mind how panels, when juxtaposed differently, we will behave next to one another, right? So a strip that in print or in or the horizontal format, the two panels will absolutely be side by side, left and right that at some point they'll be stacked vertically. So when I'm laying out the strip, I have to always be cognizant of the potential new relationship that the, the panels will have with one another. Like So if something's jutting out of one panel, it doesn't poke into the other panel or doesn't distract or doesn't make it difficult to read. But when push comes to shove, I will throw out all of it for the print. If you go back four or five weeks, there's this giant goofy map that Sir Quimp finds. And it's basically the size of all four of the stacked panels. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to reformat this. Over on Go Comics, where the strip is almost always horizontal, I said, nope, we're going to see the map full size, big, tall, wide. I mean, it's it, very vertical. So in the at the end of the day, I don't care about the other formats as much as I care about print. And also, it's the most popular way that the strip will be seen, will be in print, delivered through social media in this kind of stacked format. It'll be distributed through my own website that way. Because being very squarish, it satisfies the maximum number of devices. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. yeah. if you can design something to be square, it'll work on as the maximum number of vertical and horizontal orientations. What are some of your favorite web strips that you would recommend? I've been reading Tom Zoller's Warning Label over on Webtoons. Very good. I love Tom Zoller's work. He's been doing work uh, in the direct market. Uh, the direct market's kind of the superhero-oriented crowd, and he's been doing work that is better for movie theaters and a much more general audience. And he's finally found that general audience and it's kind of exploded for him. It's wonderful. It's like he's finally in the right room for his work. You just had an interview with Dean Haspel. I like his work a lot. I look at a lot of the stuff over on Go Comics. I'm still a big fan of the comics being produced there. Phoebe and her Unicorn by Dan Simpson is, is charming uh, and probably the closest thing to what I'm doing. It's a young girl talking with a unicorn and it's a lot of uh, dialogue like that. I think mine's kind of the <laughs> the, the flip side of that an older man talking to a sword. There are so many. But if you go to Webtoons and you hit the Discover page there, you'll see a ton and ton of stuff. It's, it's almost too much. Having started webcomics in 1998, when it was easy to get a lot of attention because there was only 10 of us doing it. And I was influential early on with webcomics, but I, you know, not to the extent of someone like Scott Kurtz with PVP and Penny Arcade and those guys. They immediately found a niche uh, an audience for their work of the tech side of things, the gaming side of things. They really grew webcomics. I mean, it was so easy to get attention back then. Nowadays, there are probably five or six webcomics starting today, you know, just in different sites. And then Webtoons is launching some with great fanfare. Uh, they're providing a, a wonderful system that's uh, paying artists to produce original content, kind of like the Netflix of webcomics right now without the subscription price, which is wonderful. Yeah, there's too many to count. Maybe one more over on Webtoons is one called 1000. It's a very striking uh, comic strip. Yeah, we have some overlap in what we read. I mean, of course, Warning Label is one that I read. Uh, okay. I read Time and Vine. Uh, Dean's work, of course. And Red Hook's coming back soon, like very soon. I think in the next mm -hmm. couple of weeks, he said recently. Uh, Strange Tales of Oscar Zahn by Tribon. Oh, yes. I really like that one, too. Um, I, I fell behind. And the nice thing about the Webtoons is I can binge and get caught up fairly quickly. <laughs> nice. And uh, it's not on Webtoons. It's Bandette, Paul Tobin, Colleen Clover. Mm. That's a very good one. And a guy I'm not familiar with, his other work, Kevin Lamb, I believe is his name, did a Webtoon called Ascent about a deep sea diver walking on the ocean floor and an octopus, a little octopus that follows him around. 
Um, oh, it's cute. That sounds great. It's cute. It's really cool. And it, there's only one season of it, but there are hopefully more. And I do discover things just looking around either on digital comics or on webtoons. And there is a lot. So uh, to be doing so well is quite an accomplishment for yourself because there is a lot, but you've been doing this for a while and you really have a, a very good handle on it, on how to format it, design it, create it, promote it. If people have not checked it out, they should. And uh, it's not hard to catch up. It's very <laughs> easy just to go through and catch up either through your website or through Webtoons. And now for the fun questions, the rest and relaxation questions. So I'll try to answer these as technically as possible <laughs> as I did with all the comments. <laughs> okay. What do you like to do, Steve, for rest and relaxation? I'm not good at either. Uh, but I would say spending time with my girlfriend or with my cats. I think that is the closest thing I get to having my brain turned off and just having fun. Spending time with my cats in particular. Because as someone who works so much, I feel like I'm neglecting everyone in my life all the time. Uh, so spending time with uh, my family is the best. You have two cats? Yes. Okay. They get along well? They do. They do. I have sadly, I've got one who's got, he's a little sick. He is, he's epileptic. So we, we kind of have to give him medicine twice a day and take care of him. And occasionally he has a seizure, but I love that little guy so much. That's why coming up soon, you'll see there's these two dragons I've been teasing in the strip from the very beginning. Uh, and they probably will appear by the time this airs in the strip. And so those are definitely my cats. Those are uh, <laughs> oh, minus the epilepsy. Yes, minus the epilepsy. This will not, the strip will not take a dark turn. <laughs> Are they your companions while you're working? Do they like curl up in your lap or anything? Yeah, yeah. I'm always wiping hair off of the iPad. Uh, <laughs> it, gets, it gets everywhere. They, they, yeah, they're, they're lovely. Now, you know this question's coming. What would be your desert island book? If you could only have one book with you, what would that book be? Uh, it's two, one of two choices. The work of Douglas Adams, like Hitchhiker's Guide, because um, it's constantly inspiring and funny. Or Lord of the Rings, because I've not gotten around to reading it. And I think I would finally, I, I think I have to be on a desert island to finally get around to, to reading that story. Ditto. I've never read it. I think I read The Hobbit back in school, but I never finished up the other books. Oh, oh and just, I knew, I knew this question. I was thinking about it, looking around my office. Um, I would want maybe some of the IDW additions just to lash together to make a raft <laughs> or shelter maybe lean one against the tree so i can hide under it you mean the artist editions the artist editions yeah. yeah yeah all right and your beverage of choice a coffee coffee very good my coffee's right here next to me here's one a guest of mine kind of said in conversation not as a question but the way he phrased it i said that would make a great question so i want to let me, let me try this out if you were an action figure what would be your accessory? Oh, jeez. <laughs> an iPad. Okay. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay. An all iPad. right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> or a cat. A cat. With... An iPad with a cat on it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, why don't you tell folks about your Patreon and your website? My website is middleagecomic.com. From there, you can find links to where it's visible on Go Comics on webtoons it's also available on tapas and also available through my facebook and instagram and uh twitter uh so those are all at steveconley.com or middleagecomic.com and the middle age is supported almost exclusively through uh patreon i have 42 patrons uh who i love dearly who, who make the comic strip possible i had the patreon from the launch the comic strip is sort of built around it and once i get to 100 patrons the middle age will be twice a week and so i'm kind of gating the production schedule to the amount of support that the strip can uh, drum up 
Uh, it's been slow going, but that's the ex- expectation. Again, there's a million other web comics out there, some great Patreon uh, systems out there, and I'm, you know, it, everyone's resources are limited. But if people check it out, I've uh, recently added a few, what I think are really cool rewards. If someone signs up at the five dollar level, let's, let's just start there at the main one. I mail them a sketch, a little postcard with a little hand drawn pen and ink drawing, uh, usually of Sir Quimp of what, or one of the other characters from the story. For one dollar and three dollars, you get things like wallpapers and access to the larger versions of the strip, so you can see a little bit more of the detail, a little bit more of the artwork. And then moving on up at the fifteen dollar level, you get actual copies of the books. So every two to three months, I put together a new comic, uh, a printed edition of either the Middle Age or one of my older comics, like Astounding Space Thrills, and I physically mail a copy to you. So it's it's been great. The response has been wonderful. I've started many many projects, and this is the one that has that seems to have resonated the most with people. It's probably the most honest work I do, um, most the most me, and I think that's partly why it's resonating, even though the outside trappings look nothing like me. Uh, <laughs> my work has never been less terrible. Uh, uh, and I, I do hope people check it out. Again, it's middleagecomic.com. And it's a lot of fun, and I enjoy it. Not binging anymore. I'm checking it out every day it comes out. And that's on Monday, right? Monday's the day that it's released? Yes, every Monday. All right, so folks, check it out. It's free. And if you can support, please support. Steve, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. I really appreciate it. I, uh, I love the podcast. That's uh, working alone as a cartoonist. You, uh, you know, you, I don't share a studio with anybody. Uh, so uh, having your podcast there is kind of gives me that little bit of that effect. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoy it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Creator Talks. The podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. If you like what you hear, please rate and review on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't miss a single episode each Thursday. Subscribe, it's free. A new interview will be available each week, and sometimes there'll be a second, maybe even a third interview that week. You can send me feedback and comment on social media. I can be reached at Creator Talks Pod, that's at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook and Twitter. I'm also available on Instagram, Creator Talks Pod. There I will post pictures while I'm on location, as well as my Saturday Silver Age or Older and Sunday Bronze Age Spotlight comics from my personal collection. Don't forget to visit my website, creatortalks.com. There I have listed the latest episode on the homepage, plus a playlist of all the episodes to date that you can listen to online or download. In addition, on the site, I'll be posting my recommended reading picks, as well as written interviews with creators. Also on my YouTube channel are video interviews with creators on location at comic conventions and elsewhere. I know you have a lot of entertainment to choose from and a lot of podcasts to choose from as well. And I thank you for making the time to listen to this one, your best source for comic book writers, artists, and creators. There are more interviews in the works and you never know who it might be. It is my distinct honor and privilege to speak to these creators and bring you those interviews each week. I'd like to thank my executive co-producer, who makes this possible, Mrs. Calloway. That's all for now. For Creator Talks, I'm Christopher Calloway. Until next time.